Thank you for tuning in to the Logic of God podcast. I'm Cody. I'm Gina. And I'm Ben. If you're returning, thank you for coming back. And if you are a new guest, welcome. Okay, so yeah, today we're going to be covering assumption number two, which is the the second assumption that we laid out in our first episode. This assumption being that both God is good and perfect in his goodness. So yeah, last episode we talked about some of the evidences for God existing. Now we're going to be talking about his character, who he really is. So in our last episode, we talked a little bit about morality, but I want to unpack what is good and what is evil a little bit more. So what do you think? What is good and what is evil? So there, there are a couple of ways to approach this. One is the easiest way, which is to just say, whatever God says is good is good, and whatever he says is evil is evil. But that's not super satisfying in no. a philosophical context. What I would say is any action that brings about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control is good. And all actions that lead to unnecessary long-term suffering or anything that stands in direct opposition to love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control is evil. So there is the theory that has been put forward by the author J.R.R. Tolkien is the idea that evil cannot create. It can only corrupt what exists. So when God first made creation, all of creation was good. And God's character is, as I said, I I won't keep repeating it, but love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All of those things are a part of God and who he is. Also known as the fruits of the Spirit. Correct. And Lord willing, we will be covering that in more detail (laughs) in another episode. The idea is, is that there are opposites to each of these virtues. So for love, there is hatred. For joy, there is agony. For peace, there is strife. For patience, there is impatience. For all of these things, there is a corrupted variant of something that is good. So evil in and of itself is not something. It is the absence or the corruption of a good thing. So we all feel to an extent love or joy or peace, etc. But there are things that happen in our lives which we can consider to be bad. And either we can allow those things to drag us down and cause us to feel despair, or they can lead us not just to have more of peace or more of love for the people in our lives, but to, in, to experience a greater understanding and a greater depth of those virtues, a greater degree of love and understanding what it is to love someone, a greater understanding of peace and more of it in our lives. So in that sense, a bad thing can be used for greater good. And so that does cause some complication for what good and evil are, because if something bad happens but can be used to increase something else that is good, can you really say it's evil? I would say, yes, it's just being used for something that is ultimately good. That being said, ultimately, that's how I would describe good and evil. Those sets of virtues that God describes as uh, the fruits of his spirit, and then evil is either the inverse of those or actions that lead to long-term meaningless suffering. But Ben, isn't that like subjective based on a person's experience and conviction? Saying eating meat is evil for example. Well, so there are, there are a lot of things that, you're right, that do come into the, the subjective area. There are people who say that, I just, I just won't eat meat because it comes from animals. There's a lot of that. 
it's built off of, of a foundation of saying that because an animal is alive and has emotions, that it has the same value as a human. No, it doesn't. If you, if you believe that God exists and you believe that God created us with the faculties both of reason and morality, which animals don't have, and we kind of covered that mm-hmm. in the last episode, animals don't have a moral law. They don't have things that they know they ought to do and know ought not to do, unless they specifically interact with humans, in which case, to a degree, they do. We all, we've all seen a dog's guilty face. They know when they, they do things <laughs> they shouldn't do. But in the end, this, uh, this idea that we are exactly the same as all of the animals is, is kind of silly. But I think, Gina, your, your question kind of goes to a broader thing, which is, isn't all the ideas of good, like love and joy and peace, these are all things that manifest in a kind of personal way. Well, there's like homosexual love, you know, there's somebody deriving joy from hurting animals. Mm -hmm. Like there are so many different examples of those things being used for bad things or things that God condemns. And yet we are still being told that they are good. Mm -hmm. And I think that in those instances, the best way to tell if they are good or evil is to check adherence to purpose. So sex is something that is very pleasurable. I think I think the jury's uh, not exactly still out on that point. I think we, we, we don't have any discussions left on that. I think we all know. <laughs> and yes, it, it is meant to be pleasurable, and it's meant to have a number of other functions aside from pleasure. What a lot of people have done now is removed those extra functions. They've removed the aspect where it is meant to be a truly intimate act. They've removed the idea that it's supposed to be an act that's main purpose is the creation of children. They've separated the biological function of sex as well as the spiritual aspect of sex and the role of a man and wife coming together. The two shall become one flesh. All of that has been cut off and all that's been left is the pleasure. And that is ultimately a corruption of its original purpose. So when we look at all of these individual different things, I don't think that it's wrong for a person to choose not to eat meat. No, I mean, there are Christians who have convictions about swearing or drinking, and, you know, they believe that those behaviors are evil and satanic and a foothold for the enemy. And I think the the reason that I, I even brought up the fact that good and evil can be subjective is just because even in the church, we're seeing differences of opinion on what is good and what is evil. And it would be nice to just, I think, lay out a foundation for, you know, as a human being, what the testing portion of good and evil looks like. Mm -hmm. I think you've already laid it out pretty well with the fruits of the spirit, but I don't know if you have any other thoughts. Cody hasn't jumped in for a bit. I'd like to hear what he has (laughs) to say on on this stuff. No, and and we could cover the good and evil topic on its own episode for sure. Absolutely. We got to differentiate between natural evil and moral evil. We'll be covering more moral evil on the topic of God's character being good. But with that said, I mean, I, I think you've explained it exquisitely. Um, Thank you. <laughs> wow. Um, I, I couldn't really add to that at all. So I think we've established that we're pretty fallible as people, but what does it mean for God to be perfect in his goodness? In both the the Christian and Jewish traditions, it's the idea that God doesn't flip-flop. He doesn't change what he says is good and what he says is evil. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If he says that truth is an important value, he doesn't the next day say, but 
I kind of like that this whole falsehood thing. I think I might give this a try. I think it's kind of fun. It's kind of saucy. I'm going to mix things up. <laughs> he he doesn't do that. Now there there are people who claim that he does because there are instances in the Bible where he commands, say, you are not allowed to punish a child for his father's sin, but then he will order that entire family be killed because of something that one person in the family did. The difference there is that when God is commanding us to do certain things, he's taking into account that we are finite creatures, that we can't see the greater picture. We can't see the sins that would have been created by the child if we're the parent. We can't see the greater impacts of the sins that we've made, and we can't see the exact impact of what our decisions are having and will eventually have on our current family or what our punishments will do to society in general. So when God says, you can't do that, he is saying this because we don't know what the cause of our punishments will be. You can't punish a kid for what his father does because you don't know what that will do. All you can say is that you know the father did something wrong, and there are laws that he has passed down to us that tell you that it's wrong, as well as punishments for how to try to rectify this imbalance that's been caused. When God looks at something that has been done wrong, he sees overall the great damage that that does, or the insignificant damage that does. And that's why there are times, like with Cain, there's the story of Cain and Abel where Cain commits the first murder against his brother. And ultimately, there's not all that much that God seems to do about it. In fact, God seems to be very generous towards Cain. Sure, he kicks him out of his current home and he sends him off to live in the land of Nod. But Cain laments and says, I'm, I'm going to be killed by somebody. And God says, I will mark you so that you aren't going to be harmed. And he ends up building a city and he lives the rest of his life out there. Okay, well, he committed the first murder against his brother who didn't deserve it. I don't feel like that's a very good punishment. But the reality is, is when you follow the story, Cain does seem to turn his life around. Like, he starts a city of his own. He does continue to have a family out there. He does make a change. And we're not told the exact extent of that change, but God knew what that change would be. It's an interesting take because I was just reading this story and I kind of felt like it was a worse punishment to make him stay alive than it was to let him get killed. <laughs> to an extent. I, I think it does depend on how you view the, the punishment of life versus the punishment of death. But when you look at his life, you do see that God doesn't create a, a situation where he's going to remain in agony and constantly punished forever. He does provide an avenue through which he can find some measure of fulfillment, and he does, because he creates one of the first cities in the land of Nod. So the point is, is that when God dishes out a punishment, whether that punishment is on one person or on multiple generations of the same family, or God shifts a punishment, a good example of this is the punishment that God says he's going to mete out on Ahab. There's a story in the Bible where uh, Elisha calls out Ahab because Ahab really wanted one guy's vineyard, and he ended up framing him for a crime and then having the people stone him at the testimony of two people who were lying. And Elisha says that he's going to die in a specific—that Ahab is going to die, sorry, in a specific way. And Ahab repents. And God says through Elisha that because he repented with sackcloth and ashes, the punishment he was going to give to Ahab— would not come during Ahab's life, but rather during the reign of his son. That doesn't seem like a very fair thing to do. But when you see the reign of Ahab's son, he was even worse than Ahab. God knew that this guy was going to come along after Ahab. And whether you say it's because of the way Ahab lived his life, or his son's own choices, or whatever, his son was worse than his father, and he deserved the punishment he got. 
God sees the big picture, we don't. And that's why he gives us specific rules for punishment of crime that he doesn't always seem to follow. Because at the heart of it, the point is, is that we don't see, and he does. I think that's good. And I think even today, there's been a lot of study done where you kind of do see the bigger picture of what certain decisions and, you know, the hierarchy of family make on the offspring after. So it makes logical sense. No, you're absolutely right. There are a lot of studies that indicate that for fatherless households, the odds of, of the child brought through a, a, single, a single mother's house uh, is much more likely to have a series of very serious issues is much more likely to become a criminal, is much more likely to be learning impaired, is much more likely to be sociopathic. There's a long list of things that come from the result of two people deciding they want to sleep together. But at at the very least, the father decides he doesn't want any responsibility after that and leaves. And that does have an impact on... It doesn't mean that the kid's life is decided by that. No. But there is a pattern we can't really deny here. Oh, and that's where your Sam Harris is, you know, atheist determinist come out. Yeah, it's always weird when you have atheists who are also Calvinists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there's, I mean, and, and that's a good way. I, I love how you put that because it's a great way of explaining because that's something I struggled with for a while is, you know, we're told on one hand that the, the sons will not suffer for their father's decisions, but then you, you see the story of Noah, you know, Ham makes a bad decision and Canaan is the one who has to suffer because of it. Mm -hmm. So good explanation. Well, thank you. So, okay. My life verse is actually Philippians 4, 8. I'm going to read it to you and then I want to pose a question. So finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So my question is, how do we define all of these good things in God's standards to understand his character? I see. So how do we look at whatever is pure or noble? And how do you know what that yeah, is? How, how do we know? Um, it's, I, I would say it's very similar to what we know is good. A lot of those things are very similar to just saying, whatever is good in this world, think about those things. And, I would say that the the same things that would be defined as good earlier, love, joy, peace, mm-hmm. patience, those things, the, the actions that you would take that would provide that in greater abundance and in greater understanding, I would say, is what you should be focused and thinking on. I'm in agreement. I was just wondering <laughs> if you guys had a different take, especially because it it is hard to take captive your mind to focus on such things. And I think there's a reason why God wants us to focus on those things. Well, I think there's a reason that Paul didn't just say, whatever is good, think about these things. When you think of nobility, when you think of purity, when you think of whatever is true, these are all different aspects of goodness generally. It's like, we can say, think of colors, But then there's an individual color. There's red, there is yellow, there is blue, there is green. When you think about the truth, okay, so there are true things. Not every single true thing is going to necessarily bring you joy in the short term. 
But if you live your life according to the truth, whatever it happens to be, and you orient yourself around it, though there may be some short-term suffering, long-term you will find peace. You will find joy. And so I think when Paul is using these different words, he's alluding to the different aspects of God specifically. And each of those individual things does require a shift in focus. These things all do lead into one another in many ways, but the, the things that God will put us through to really explore them are often very different, is what I mean. Yeah. What about you? Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> well, then why does it matter if God is good or perfect? Well, there's a, a verse in Romans. It's uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. And it, it talks about, it, it's, it's a little bit straying from this, but not by much, where Paul is posing a hypothetical, where someone w- might say that, you know, God is, is using bad things. And I, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in the human way, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's an accusation that God is not being righteous because of his judgments. And If he was unrighteous, he would have no right to judge the world, which is essentially what Paul is saying. Yeah, it's very important that God be perfect, both perfect and good, because he is the one who passes judgment. He is the one who judges our actions, who says if they are good or evil. If he is not consistent in that, if he's not the ultimate arbiter of what is good or evil, if he's not the ultimate arbiter of what is perfect, he couldn't possibly look at us each individually and say if we're doing good or evil. In fact, good or evil wouldn't even exist at that point. Well, many, many people, and this ties into what we shared in our last episode, but a lot of people believe that there is no judgment. So if there is no judgment, then you don't really need a scale of good and evil. Well, the the problem with a lot of that is that no matter who you are, you do believe in judgment. Because well, whenever you- <laughs> someone, whenever someone does something, even in the most tolerant of all Unitarian churches, if you look at when someone has something horrible done to them, suddenly all of these ideas about good and evil not really existing, about punishment not really existing, go out the window. Yeah. Ultimately, when you have mass murderers, when you have rapists, when you have swindlers and liars and sociopaths who are willing to sacrifice other people's lives for their own gain, even setting aside the, the universalist stuff, the average person, if you really ask them about it, will admit, yeah, absolutely, there are people who exist out there who do bad things. In fact, if you ask most people, they say that they don't like most people. How often have you ever heard, oh yeah, I hate people. People are terrible. People are disgusting. People are wrong. I have a volunteer, she's 17 and she says it all the time. She Mm -hmm. loves people, but she says she hates people. Mm -hmm. And it's it's a sentiment that we can all feel because when we look at the world around us, we do feel like it's constantly falling apart and that people are constantly ignoring things that are obvious and true. Not us, obviously. I mean, obviously we're the the good people who are not... (laughs) You know, with our heads in the sand, ignoring all of the, the real things that are happening. We know what's going on. We have our heads screwed on right. Obviously, we're the good people. And that's kind of always the way that it is. It's that you, the rest of the world has fallen apart. We're fine. We're okay. I mean, God would look at us and say, you're, you're okay. I mean, why wouldn't he? <laughs> but everyone else kind of sucks. So Yeah, that oh, makes sense. I'm made in the image of God, and he's perfect. Therefore, I'm perfect. Uh, I think, therefore, I am. Perfect. For me, this one is a very um, 
in-depth question, so I'll try to answer it shortly. Um, if, or longly, it's okay. Why does it matter if God is good? So why it matters is, one, if God is not good and perfect, then why serve him? But two, if God is not good, then there is no absolute moral goodness. And that would mean that moral relativity is true. But when you take moral relativity to its fullest extent, you wind up with Hitler doing what he did being okay because, you know, he was doing what was best for him and what benefited him the most. And when you're living in a reality where that is all that matters, then that's good to that one person and that that can't be true. So without God being good, there is no absolute goodness. So I, I think that, that would be how I'd answer it in a short way. Yeah, and I think that's a good answer. But on the opposite side of that, why does evil exist if God is so good? Well, it kind of goes back to what Tolkien said. Evil itself is not something. It is the corruption of goodness. Or, if you want, it's the absence of goodness. So, darkness in and of itself, since there are a lot of parallels between good and evil and light and dark. Darkness in and of itself is not something. It is the absence of light. Cold in and of itself is not something. It is the absence of heat. Evil in and of itself is not something. It is the absence of good. Thus, as a concept, it has to exist because good is something. And to remove good from something is to create evil. Now, if you're going to create something that has free will, something with the capacity to choose, then by necessity, evil does have to exist as a concept. Because if it is able to choose, it has to be able to reject that which exists, that which is. So, did God create evil? No, he created something with the capacity to choose, which is a pretty significant difference. Yeah. It's a bit like saying that when you get a dark room by shutting a door, that the light made it dark. <laughs> no, you made it dark by shutting the door. I like that analogy. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so is it possible to be good without God? No. Why? Well, that's a bit like saying, is it possible to light up a room without light? But we're created in his image. Don't we have light? So we kind of discussed this in the previous episode. What I believe that means is that we have three parts to our being, which is mind, body, and will. Those things, as God created them, were good. But all three of those things can be corrupted to be evil. It's just like the, uh, the creation of Lucifer, Satan, the devil. The name Lucifer means bringer of light. He was not made to be evil. He was not made to be a dark force in the world. He was made to be good, but he made a choice because he also, like us, was given free will. And he made the choice to rebel against God, to turn his back on him and to try to be his own son, his own center of the universe, his own light and to put his desires above the will of God. And ultimately, that led to his fall. And that led to him being the prince of darkness that we refer to today. So, no, it isn't possible for us to be good without God, because although we are made in his image, we are capable of corrupting that image. And once that image is corrupted, the only person who can save it is God. But what about people who are not Christian, but donate to a good cause, so to speak, or, you know, go out and serve the community. Is that not good? Well, I've, I've been tackling these questions for a bit. Gina, do you have any thoughts on this? 
And actually, Cody, you should probably answer a couple of these yourself yeah, too. Answer your own questions. Seriously, Cody. bro. <laughs> like, be like every good intellectual and answer your own questions. I'll you sure to, you already know? <laughs> you already know the answers. I have the perfect answer to my own question. I it, hope you do. I bet good. you do. No, go for it. What do you think? I'm just I'm rereading the question. I don't think that one was on there. Okay, well, ask it again. I don't remember what I asked, to be quite honest. (laughs) (laughs) So the the idea that that Cody presented was if there is a person who doesn't know God, but just kind of, you know, gives to charity, does good, would be someone that everyone around him would say is definitely a good person. Isn't that enough? No. Why? Because... If you want to have the relational aspect of salvation, you have to acknowledge God's goodness and what he did for you through Christ. And it's nothing less than that acknowledgement will do. I like it. Yeah. Here's a question. But it kind of jumps ahead, so maybe I should say Yeah, I think Cody still hasn't answered his own question question, that he forgot. So how I'd answer this, can you... Can somebody do good without God? Or rather, can someone be good without God? Can someone be good without God? It depends, again, on how you define that. And if you have no absolute truth, then, you know, you get into the uh, relativity realm. But what would be the purpose of somebody doing good without God? It serves no purpose. It would be in vain. You know, we're but a mist here today, gone tomorrow. Like, what purpose would it serve if there's no absolute goodness? If, if you're not doing it for the absolute goodness, then you're really not doing anything good at all. You're just doing it in vain. Calling yourself good doesn't make yourself good. And I know lots of people who are self-proclaimed atheists that say, well, I'm a good person, and it's pretty messed up that God doesn't want to take me as I am and save me. And they completely miss the point. But with the option of free will, and this is where I kind of probably contradict myself on the surface of this question, because if there is always the choice to do good or bad, even absent of God, then yes, you can do good, but it doesn't really serve a purpose. Well, the idea is, can you be made right in God's eyes by doing good separate from him? That's completely different. Well, we we know we don't accomplish that because the Bible tells us that we don't accomplish that through works. We all have blemishes. We, we can't be made perfect without God in that sense. Can you still do good things without God, though, is what I was asking. I don't know. Maybe it's a weird question. Well, another thing to to keep in mind, which is very important, is what was the first sin? It was a pretty banal thing. It was eating fruit from a tree that we were asked not to. I would argue that it was, I mean, I know that that, this will be controversial, but I I mean, I think believing that God's a liar would be the sin that preceded eating the fruit. That potentially. It isn't necessarily that they'd have to believe that. They they may take it into consideration, but not be like, well, I don't know. Not knowing is not necessarily a sin. But I, 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 gave them direct instructions. Correct. So the first, you, you could say that the first actual action that was taken, but regardless, it doesn't really change that much. 
the idea is is that and you could be right so let's even go with that That's that the okay. first the first sin that ultimately led to the cascading massive sins after the fact was them believing god was a liar we can go with that or you can go with the first sin being eating fruit from a tree no matter what the first sin is a pretty banal thing it wasn't a horrendous act of torture it wasn't a killing it wasn't something that we would consider in modern society to be absolutely horrendous. And more importantly, for the cultures that came before us that weren't as sheltered as we are, that were more regularly exposed to evil and death and suffering, the idea of believing God to be a liar, entertaining the idea even, or disobeying and eating the fruit. That's that's not that big of a deal. The point is that sin is such a horrendously corrupting force. It doesn't matter how little of it you allow into your life. It is a horrendous, terrifying, corrupting thing. And it took a single act, and it transformed an entire pure and perfect world into a cursed one. God cannot allow even a tiny bit of that in heaven. He cannot allow a tiny bit of it in, its, in his presence, because it can't be, because darkness can't exist in light. As long as you allow that, any amount of it, in your life, you will be destroyed in the presence of God. You cannot stand in the presence of God. There are so many stories that come from the Old Testament of people, imperfect people, coming into the presence of God, and they weep, and they fall to their knees, and they tremble, because they know that there is a part of them inside of themselves that is not natural, and is still there, and is in the presence of something that is true and pure and glorious. So, when you say that you're mostly good, but you got a couple areas that you need to work on. But ultimately, God should still let you in. <laughs> and you don't have to follow his other rules because you're mostly good. That is entirely missing the point, which is that a single sin, a banal sin, led to the world becoming what it is. And God is not going to allow that in his presence because he can't. Because you won't be there if he does. Agreed. So you can't do, and this sounds more like, you know, you can't do works to get to heaven. Mm-hmm. But outside of the getting to heaven, do you think that non-Christians do good things? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I know that is, that is kind of a separate question entirely because as listed, what are good things? Things that bring love, joy, peace. Bad things can result in good things. Yeah. Even actions that are taken that are objectively bad, like the death of a loved one that is objectively bad, can lead to people growing closer together, can lead to loved ones who've never spoken to one another or haven't spoken for years and who have damaged relationships come back together and repair what has been broken. So, yeah, I would say that the same way that bad things can be used for good, that, yeah, anyone can do good things. But like you said, it's pointless. What is the Yes, it's something that is being used by God for something with or without your expressed consent or desire. I think also like, okay, I'm good. Like I'm good, but it's not the same as sanctification. No. And when you don't have sanctification and and refinement in your life, like and good is good enough, you're never going to become your potential, which like the potential that God has for you is so much better and more and is perfected by comparison. Did we answer... Why would God create things that are capable of evil? 
I don't think that we specifically indicated that, but we kind of covered it in that that is a part of free will. But I don't think we actually explained why God would bother making something that has free will to begin with. That's such a hard question. Yeah. Like the question that we've been kind of talking about is like, why do people want to have children and why did God want to create us? Mm -hmm. That's, That's a really hard question. Well, and and going off of that, you guys have a a few kids. If you had the power to snap your fingers and make it so that they could never disobey you and never disrespect you and always listen to you and always love you, no matter what, would you snap your fingers and make that happen? No. No, it'd be pointless. Well, our our children are very colorful individuals, and that would completely drain the, the life, like the color out of the relationships and part of the fun for me is butting heads because I learn a lot. Mm-hmm. Like if, if they were obedient little, like, I don't know, brainless people, it wouldn't, there would be no, no back and forth. It would, they would have to love me and it wouldn't feel worth it. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't be love. No. That, that's, that's not love. That's not relationship. That's not anything worth having, like having a robot. Like that's becoming prevalent in our culture right now is, you know, AI, robots. Is it beneficial for accomplishing stuff? Sure. But from a relationship standpoint, it's lifeless. Well, we, like Cody and I went through um, like a three-year season where we couldn't have children. Mm. Like we lost babies, three of them. And then like we were diagnosed infertile and... It was not easy. You know, it wasn't possible for me to just be like, okay, I don't need any more. Like there is an overwhelming desire in me, even now having three children to like go do it all over again. And I can't explain why other than just knowing what I have and believing that in a little simple, feeble way, like we're mimicking God's own creation and love for us through parenting. I would also argue that, you know, if God's law is written on our hearts, that's one of the first commands in the Bible is to be fruitful and multiply. I believe that fruitfulness does not equal having children. No, I think the multiply part would be having... But people combine the two, and I, I like making that point. I like that. <laughs> yes, the and is a very important separator. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I just assume that's how most people took it. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'll be honest, that is the way that I took it. But what? I'm glad that you have the different interpretation there. That does actually make things very interesting. <laughs> Fruitfulness does not always equal having children. Indeed. Especially for people that, like, we're, we have a lot of friends that are going through infertility and don't know when or if they will have children and if being fruitful and multiplying is the same exact thing as having babies, then they would never be able to fulfill that. And God would not ask people to do things that are not possible. Mic drop. This is the logic of God. <laughs> this is the logic of God podcast. Thank you very much for tuning in. So I'm just going to go for it because we were talking about having children. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of people that I know that ask this question and it it just sort of leads into our last question, which is why would God, why would a good God send people to hell? And we talked a little bit about it in our last episode about, you know, people who have never even had the opportunity to know God and 
you know, what happens to them. And so I want to unpack both of these questions because I think God's goodness deserves an opportunity to speak for the people who never had an opportunity to know him, like our babies that passed away. I think if you tackle this topic or this question, you're taking a lot of authority on yourself or a lot of speculation or both. At the end of the day, I don't think we know how God judges people, like what his specific requirements for each specific person living completely different lives is like. Is it going to be, you know, one overall, or is he going to give everybody an opportunity to hear the gospel? You know, an argument can be made, you know, God's not coming back or Jesus is not coming back until everybody's heard the gospel. But if people have died without hearing the gospel, is Jesus never coming back? So at some point somewhere, I think everybody gets the opportunity to choose God or reject God, but that is personal speculation. I can't really back that up with solid scripture, but why he would send people to hell is just the, the, the rejection, the, the, the sin causing blemish that cannot be in his presence. So one of the things we should probably address is what exactly hell is, because there are a lot of people who have this kind of image in their head of a bunch of you know, guys in red underpants dancing around with <laughs> pitchforks and poking people and all kinds of inventive tortures. And they bring up Dante's Inferno on the different layers of hell. There are a few different specific mentions of hell throughout the Bible, mostly in the New Testament. There's uh, mentions in Luke, in Revelation, in Matthew. Typically, what it is referred to as a, a dark, fiery pit where people are bound and thrown, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, where there is separation from God. Whether or not the fiery pit aspect is a kind of colorful description, a way for us to kind of conjure an idea of dark suffering, or it is literally a dark pit in which our souls are going to be thrown, is a matter that's up for debate. But ultimately, what it is, regardless of its physical manifestation or spiritual manifestation, is separation from God. Eternal. Eternal complete, all-encompassing separation from love, joy, peace, patience, everything that is God's character. If you choose to reject God, all of those good things are gone. Man, that sounds like hell. I know, right? <laughs> and so regardless of how that actually looks, where, wherever hell is, that's functionally what it is. It's a quarantine zone for all people who have rejected God. Can I ask you a question? Please do. Do you believe that hell goes on forever, or do you believe that hell has an end? Uh, From everything that we've been told, it seems that hell goes on forever. And that certainly makes sense to me to an extent. I'd be lying if I said that I didn't wonder if there was some way for people to get out, if there was some way for God to extend his sacrifice to the people who are there now. I don't know. There's nothing in the Bible that says that it does. And as much as I hope that there, there is hope for those people there, I can't find anything in the Bible to support the idea that there is an escape. And that certainly makes sense because there is, this is a bit off topic, but there is one unforgivable sin that is mentioned in the Bible, and it's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Or it's widely assumed that that is what the one unforgivable sin in the Bible is. And it seems strange that that's the one unforgivable thing, the one thing that God would not forgive you for doing. 
Why that? Well, the idea is, is that God sends his Holy Spirit to the people who call on him, who know him, who, who truly love him and are pursuing him. When you know God in his fullness, when you know God as good as any person possibly can, and you truly love him, that's the point where you know and reject, you know exactly what you're rejecting. There's no turning back from that. There's no argument to convince you. If you've lived in God's light, and suddenly you decide it's not good enough for you, you know what you're rejecting. Most of us have the benefit of a level of ignorance. But at that point, God's revealed himself to you completely, and you've rejected him. Once we're dead, and once we've gone to our final judgment, that, like, like Cody said, there's a lot that we don't know. Mm-hmm. And I think we're not told for a very, very good reason. If we knew that the gospel was going to be taught to people after they died, why would we even bother teaching the gospel? We wouldn't. There would no, be no incentive. And maybe that is what happens, and maybe not. We don't know. But the point is, is that God is ultimately just. He is the, the true arbiter of justice. And as we've discussed, he is complete in his perfection of goodness. If he is truly good and he is truly just, then no matter what it is he does, we can't look at the decisions and make any reasonable argument to why he could have done something else. So maybe there is no hope for the people in hell, and it seems that that's the case, because once you're in hell, you have made your decision. You have rejected God. And as a result, what could you be told to get you out? I like that explanation because it kind of, a question, not that I've had myself, but I've heard asked before is, do the angels have a chance at salvation? And, you know, they would have blasphemed the Holy Spirit or God at that point, and mm-hmm. it's unforgivable. Like, they they were in the presence of God. They're in a completely different position than we are, and they rejected that. So, mm-hmm. I like that. It's so interesting that the angels have been in the presence of God and in his counsel and still struggle with his sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Like, we have a a lot to take on in becoming a Christian because there are a lot of questions that there are no good answers for. And that's where faith is required. Mm -hmm. And I know that's a cookie cutter response that Cody hates because people will be like, you just got to believe. And that's not a fair answer either. But you know, faith, faith is really important in, in believing in God's goodness outside of all of the evidence that exists. Yeah, I agree that, One of the most interesting books in the Bible, one of my most favorite, is the book of Job. And the reason is because not only is it a story about a guy who has an absolutely horrible time, the worst suffering that any person could possibly have, where all of his family except his wife is wiped out, and all of his property is completely destroyed, and all of his livestock is taken away, and his health is taken away from him, and his friends turn on him, and his wife turns on him, and he's sitting alone a miserable mess scraping at boils with pieces of broken pottery. And his friends come up to him and tell him that he obviously deserved it. And he tells them that he didn't deserve it. And he keeps trying to find a way to reconcile God's goodness, his justice, his perfection with his current situation. And he can't. And he says, I would argue my case before God, even though I know it's pointless, because I know I don't deserve it. And every single friend attacks him in a different way, saying, clearly you deserved it because you're here. And God finally shows up. And what does God say? It's not about deserving. I am God. And that's it. He restores Job's fortunes. He gives him back everything that he had. 
He rebukes the friends that, he, that were around him, telling him that he deserved it, because he clearly didn't. And he tells Job to pray for his friends. But it's like in every other story, you would have God come forward and say, this is why I did it. This is the reason for it. Or he would say, Job, you clearly did deserve it. And there are a lot of people who teach that Job somehow deserved it, completely missing the end of the story. The point is, you aren't owed an explanation for every single thing that happens to you. And sooner or later, you're going to come to a point where there's a question that you have that you won't get an answer to. Or something will happen in your life that is absolutely horrible, and you'll be suffering and not knowing why. You're not owed an explanation. At that point, you have to understand God is God, and he has his reasons for what he's doing, and whether he explains himself or not, that will always be the truth. And you can have the faith to accept it, or you can reject it. But the the special thing about those situations is where you choose to use it as your testimony and help other people going through the same exact thing who have even less answers than you. Absolutely. That's how you glorify God. That's how you prove his goodness in those bad times without an explanation. Mm -hmm. Personally, I find a lot of those testimonies to be some of the most powerful. And I think we all have an immense amount of respect for the people we see around us who suffer, but still choose to love and who choose to put the needs of other people before them. The enemy wants you to shut up and sit down and pretend like everything's fine. But you're allowed to talk about it, especially with people who need you. Absolutely. Awesome. What do you think, Cody? <laughs> no, I agree. <laughs> I like it. Solid C. Solid C. <laughs> C minus. <laughs> D's get degrees. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Logic of God podcast. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and share and leave a review. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us at The Logic of God, and you can also send us an email at thelogicofgod at gmail.com. Thanks and have a great day.